every Tuesday about this time. We, uh, we've got the sinister Papa was a Rolling Stone song going in the background. We got Steve Baker, who's uh, he crawled out of the weeds down in Houston to uh, join us today. And as he does every Tuesday, he brings us up to date on some things that uh, we don't really get the inside scoop on. And in this particular case, he's been embedded in a group of people that are human trafficking specialist at finding out all kind of stuff. Mr. Baker, are you there? I am. Good morning, Dan. Are you healthy? I am. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not only, I'm not only healthy. And despite the fact that I uh, drove most of the night, I'm, uh, I, in fact, I just got home and in front of this microphone about an hour ago. Well, um, I know you've got a lot on your plate coming up and I want to get into that, but I want you to debrief us. I like to use that term. You know, when you get, you go out and do a secret service job and you come back and you debrief. I want you to debrief us on what you found. Uh, I appreciate and our fans really thought a lot about the, uh, the inside scoop you gave us a week ago. We were scared because of what you faced down there, but kind of give us a quick summary. So those that are tuning in the first time know where you've been and what's gone on and then tell us the latest about Houston. Yeah, the, the quick summary for everyone who is not up to speed on that is that uh, about a month and a half ago, uh, by complete accident and through a what has to remain a confidential source up to this point, I was made aware of a human trafficking situation down in Houston that was completely unknown to local authorities, uh, either the Houston PD, state police, or the even the, the federal offices there, the FBI. And uh, as a result of the veracity and the reliability of the source, I was able to bring in some other reporters. I was able to also bring in some help from some actual human trafficking experts that work outside of government now. They work with still, but their job is now outside of government, though previously that was not the case. And, and so this is a real learning curve for me. I, I didn't go into this as an expert, but I went into it just with that, you know, kind of investigative nose and realizing that I had something substantial worth following. And so as, as we kind of jump forward and jump through um, a month and a half worth of work on that particular story, I found myself, I think this, I think we updated everybody on this last week of, uh, Friday a week and a half ago, I found myself sitting in the front seat of a truck working on an actual case with a, a human trafficking investigative specialist on a case that was actually handed to him by the FBI themselves. And this was, you know, we can, we can weave a lot of new and very hot off the presses news stories into this <laughs> Dan, but the, the reality is, is that the FBI does not have the resources themselves, or they're maybe, I don't know, distracted by other concerns like arresting, um, pro-life activists in Pennsylvania <laughs> we just, uh, with a SWAT raid. We just, uh, we just did that story for Mr. Mark Houck. And, uh, I, again, I told you we had Mike Johnson, Congressman, on, right. the, on the phone a little bit. And I, I really, I, I got into it with him about specifically, can we stop this weaponized department of justice that are just, I mean, they're like 
third world country governments now. Yeah. They just go after people. It, it is it is truly a frightening time. And I, this is not hyperbolic, Dan, when I say this. I am, not just for my own situation, because I have my own reasons for concern related to the FBI, as you know. Obviously, you, um, you live your life looking over your shoulder every day. <laughs> That's right. I wake up, uh, well, actually, I go to bed every single night of my life wondering if tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. I'm not going to have a dozen red dots on my chest when I answer the door. I, and I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. That's I, I understand. Every night before I go to sleep. Yeah, I understand. I believe it. And so I found myself in this situation where I was, I'm just, I'm just a ride along. I'm learning. I'm asking this guy a thousand questions specifically about this new thing that I've gotten myself involved in with human trafficking. And he read me into the entire file. He was given a case handed to him by the FBI, basically as a subcontractor to the government, to go out as a private investigator to track down and hunt down a guy that's trafficking underage girls across multiple state lines. And this is, again, because they obviously have their priorities on other areas. So there you go. That kind of sets the stage. And I think maybe we were up to date a little bit uh, from last Tuesday morning. But here's what. But I, I've I've got to tell you this story, and I think your I think your listeners will really appreciate this story. Go for so it. Last so last Tuesday after we talked, it had already been determined that that was going to be kind of a writing, planning, decompression, and. Uh, catching myself up on all my notes day for all the work that I'd been doing for the previous week down there. So I, you know, admittedly right here in front of God and everybody, I'm a, I'm a cigar aficionado. I think better. I work better. I type better. Uh, I write better when I have a cigar hanging out of my mouth. I'm right there with uh, you, chief. Yeah. So, you know, think of, uh, uh Tolkien with his pipe and CS Lewis with his cigarette. We all seem to write better in that circumstance. But the bottom line is, is that I found a cigar lounge close to where I was staying in Houston. I walk in the door about 3.45 such p.m. And I was the only person in the, in the lounge at this point, and the proprietor welcomed me, really friendly guy. And I, you know, I told him I was on the road traveling. He obviously saw me with my computer there, and I said, I just need a place to work for a few hours. I'm just going to curl up in one of your big comfy leather chairs in the corner and go to work. He said, yeah, absolutely. Pro, no problem. Work as long as you want. But I just wanted to let you know that at seven o'clock, we have a group of men coming in for the Tuesday night Bible study there. And I went cigar lounge. He said, oh yeah, yeah. He said, yeah, it's, it's beer, bourbon and cigars and a Bible study. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, you can't get more Texas than that, right? Oh my gosh. We live in the South, buddy. <laughs> yeah. So I'm thinking to myself, I, I think that I, it would be curious for me to sit in on that because I'd probably just get a story out of it, if anything else, just as a writer. But I also had the other problem is that I had not had a single bite to eat yet all day, not anything. I was drinking coffee all day and nothing to eat. And as you know, after a couple of cigars on an empty stomach, you probably should eat. So I um, was still working at about 6.45, guys start coming in for the Bible study. 
and they start rearranging the chairs into this big circle. And these are these big, heavy, you know, leather chairs. Well, I'm in the most comfortable one in the very corner. So literally by seven o'clock, they have me trapped. I am not getting out to go to dinner. You're going to so be, kinda, you're going to be there with in a Bible study is what it is. Yes. That's exactly what's happening. So I, I kind of smiled to myself. I closed the lid of my laptop. I set it down beside myself and then it begins. So the guy who was running leading the, um, the study, he introduced himself and he said, I see we have a couple of new faces here. And there was a dozen guys there. And he said, I, I, what we normally do is we go through this 90 second drill. So we're going to take 90 seconds and everybody will 90 seconds at, some, at a time will introduce themselves. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, you know, that kind of thing. Well, they're going clockwise and they start with a guy to my immediate left. So that means I'm going to be last. So 90 seconds time a dozen guys means I have a lot of time to determine how I'm going to introduce myself. And I've got options, Dan. I can introduce myself as a professional musician. I can say that I'm a writer or I can say that I'm a uh, investigative journalist investigating the seedy underside of your fair city right now. <laughs> so I, I'm which way waiting. did you, which way did you go? Well, that's, this is, this is where this story is going. So about halfway through the room, one of the other new faces, he introduces himself as a former Marine, a little bit down on his luck in between jobs, blah, blah, blah. So the guy who is running the Bible study, he's sitting to my, uh, exact right. So all of a sudden he asked the Marine, he says, do you need a job? The guy says, well, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for one right now. He jumps up. The, the Bible study leader jumps up, reaches in his pocket, pulls out his business card, steps across the room to hand the Marine his card. And in the process of doing that, he says, I run a security and personal protection service. We provide personal protection and security for uh, athletes here in town, politicians, high net worth individuals, blah, blah, blah. And I would be very interested in talking to somebody with your skill set. Most of the people that work for me are former military uh, special forces operatives, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Dan, I decided right there how I was going to introduce myself. <laughs> As you can imagine, I picked uh, the uh, investigative journalist investigating the seedy underside of your city. So when I did that and told them what I was actually looking at, the Bible study leader looks at me and says, we need to talk. And I said, yes, sir, we do. So at 6.30 the next morning, I am on a planning call with two of his special operatives and we are deciding how we are going to go and look at that building that I think I may have mentioned last Tuesday that I had stumbled upon that yeah. was being guarded by a, a cartel lookout member. Yeah, you did. You gave us the, the, the big skinny and that's what had all of us really concerned about uh, your welfare, to be honest with you. So what ended up happening is I, that, um, uh, Next morning, on Wednesday morning, last week, I went downtown Houston. I rented a bicycle. Now, I'm looking like a tourist bicycle guy, but I'm wearing a body hidden body camera. And so I made a run past the backside of this um, abandoned building. And by the way, that's an abandoned school building. It's an old head start, 
Head Start School building that had been uh, condemned because of the flooding from the hurricane five years ago. And so I made a run by that. The lookout was not there. I made a run around the front of the building. Couldn't find it. Couldn't see anyone that was actually watching the facility at the time. So it just, again, another something you might call a coincidence. This investigator uh, slash security guy slash personal protection expert, his office is only a mile from where this building is, <laughs> downtown Houston. So my next move is after I take the rental bike back, I drive over to his office. I walk in. I show them my, my videos that I had just taken from the the uh, my little surveillance of the building itself. And his guys were there, and they all looked at each other and said, let's go. 30 minutes later, we went through the door of that building with guns drawn. Wow. Yeah. So, so the moral, the, 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 the moral of the story <laughs> is that there's, there seems to be a hand guiding what we're doing down there in Houston right now. Well, I got to be honest with you. I, you know, I'm a Christian and I believe God really cares about people and I believe God cares about young people children and teenagers more than he cares about adults, to be honest with you. And uh, I don't doubt that what happened in the cigar bar and you're making that connection was a divine connection. And uh, all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. And big boy, I know your mama. <laughs> and she she definitely feels that for you so it's a good thing is there yeah. a good ending so far you have an ending no, for us. we do not have an ending to this story yet the long-term projection is that the actual investigators involved in this process down there they because i'm a writer they want me to tell their story they have actually said to me we don't trust reporters, but for some reason we trust you. And will you tell our story? Because they don't believe that either the press, Hollywood, either in movie or television or even documentary form has told the story of what they're up against down there and what they're dealing with every day. And they said, will you tell them, not, will you tell our story? And I said, yes. So this is now going to be quite a long-term project to me in addition to everything else that I'm involved with. Well, I see a book maybe at the end of it, maybe a movie, maybe a documentary. What do you think? Well, there's, there's other incredible connections right now. And I think I may have mentioned one of these last week. I, I don't remember whether I did or not, but after my initial foray into this particular case, a very close friend of mine, who spent 30 years in Hollywood as a Hollywood executive forwarded this story to, um, <laughs> this is quite a, quite a name here. You know who Stanley Kubrick is? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's one of the <laughs> Clock, clockwork orange. <laughs> yeah. 2001 space oddity. Yeah. Dr. Strangelove, yeah. Spartacus. I mean, just keep going down the list and, and his daughter, Vivian Kubrick, who also now lives in Texas, another uh, expat Californian, is very involved in the um, child, 
trafficking world as well in terms of uh, as an activist against that and in support of those who are working against that. So I've actually had a couple of phone calls with her already, and she's very interested in this story. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, It's just six weeks ago, Dan, I... This was not even a, uh, not a single brain cell of mine had ever even given a moment's thought to actually delving into that world. You know, we know about it. We, we we're concerned about it. We care about it. We're, we're, we're aware that this is happening. But, uh, six weeks ago, I had no intention of being involved in this, um, type of investigation. Well, let's circle back to the investigation. The last time we, uh, you were with us last Tuesday, we talked about the guy that followed you that was at this building, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And you uh, went back th- at midnight and uh, I can't believe you went back at midnight, but anyway, you did. <laughs> and we kind of left the investigation at that point, the actual human child trafficking investigation. Can you give us an update on anything? Yeah. As far as the, the initial uh, case, we do not have a resolution on that. Okay. We did, in fact, find evidence of the children's uh, activities and location in the brush, but not in the school, uh, not in the uh, not in the building. And, okay. No, not in the building. So we we uh, we naturally assumed that that particular look that particular lookout was watching, probably uh, standing guard over a drug exchange or something that was taking place inside there that day. Yeah. It's a good thing you didn't go in. No. (laughs) It is a very good thing I did not go in. Not a good part of town to be uh, by yourself at night, especially. Yeah. Well, let's talk about where you're headed next. Now, for folks that don't know, Steve Baker, um, his big thing happened on January 6th. And it's not just his only big thing. But uh, the thing that brought all of this to fruition was he was in the middle of the January 6th, whatever you want to call it, insurrection. <laughs> uh, I, they've got a million names for it, but you know what I'm talking about, at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, yeah. D.C. And Steve right. is a very good photojournalist, and he was there doing that work, and he videoed tons of everything that happened in and around the Capitol. And there's been a lot, as you know, of misinformation that has purposely been thrown out by the government, also by the media, and it's wave after wave. Somebody says this, and then they share it with somebody else, and it's all blown out of proportion. And one would think that there were armed conservatives that were at the U.S. Capitol that had Gatling guns, and they were going to kill every Democrat in Washington, D.C. that day. That's how broad it goes and how wide it goes. But the Oath Keepers were implicated in all of this. Tell us who the Oath Keepers really are. Well, the Oath Keepers are an organization founded by a gentleman named Stuart Rhodes a dozen or so years ago. And he wanted to have a group of men who had, and women, who had already taken an oath to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, by means of their previous service in law enforcement uh, or with a federal agency or in the military. And so uh, over the course of the next dozen years, he had put together an organization of tens of thousands of 
gentlemen who wanted to continue serving the country with the oath that they had taken while in actual service and on the payroll of the government, whatever level. And so they have a history of, are you ready for it, Dan? Zero violence. Zero violence. Zero. No, everything I've heard, let me stop you there. Everything I've heard about the Oath Keepers is they walk around with guns, they all have long hair and beards, and uh, they're all KKK-type people. Well, sometimes they do walk around with guns because that's what they do. They provide personal security. They provide event security. As a matter of fact, because even when Trump was doing rallies in blue states, blue cities, where the Secret Service was not given by the local government the support they needed from local law enforcement, you know how that happens. Oh, yeah. When the Secret Service comes to town, they engage with local PD, the sheriff's departments, the state troopers, and such as that. But if you're in the wrong city, the wrong uh, state, and your name is Trump, you may not get what you need. You won't get what so you the, need. Right. So the Secret Service actually would engage with the Oath Keepers themselves to provide additional security. And in fact, on January 6th, the group of Oath Keepers that were there that day were actually working with the, the Secret Service in the security barricade with inside the security barricade there at the ellipse where the speech was taking place. Huh. And the Secret Service said, hey, would you go do this or would you go watch that boat or would you hand this, like they had brochures with instructions for certain types of people and then would you go hand these out for us, that sort of thing. Right. So these guys were there doing a job. They were not there for insurrection. They were not there to invade the Capitol. As a matter of fact, uh, Joe Hanneman from the uh, Epoch Times just yesterday I posted a story which the title says FBI transcript shows that Stuart Rhodes, the, the founder of um, the Oath Keepers, told agents in his interview that he ordered the Oath Keepers away from the Capitol on January 6th. We covered that. We covered that. We covered that story. Be corrobor- and, and just so you know, because I've seen it, that's going to be corroborated by his private messaging transcripts, which have not been made public. Wow, wow. to be corroborated in the trial, assuming Judge Maida allows uh, that exculpatory type of information to be presented, because at this point, he's been shooting everything down in flames. So the Oath Keepers, in the aftermath, the Oath Keepers have been portrayed as being bad seeds that were there to instigate violence, yada, yada, yada. That's been the mainstream story. And Yeah, and they are exactly the opposite of that. Give us the update on the trial that is upcoming, what you know about the trial. Well, uh, I think we may have talked about this with your listeners before. I'm, I'm actually working with the legal team for Ken Harrelson, and he's one of the Oath Keepers from Florida who is and has been sitting in uh, the D.C. Gulag for over 500 days now, often and for many, many, many weeks or months at a time in solitary confinement. But uh, Ken is unfortunately one of those individuals who literally had no other intent in his heart or mind but to go up and provide security for a side stage where some speakers were going to be at 2 o'clock on January 6th on the Capitol lawn, as a matter of fact, licensed from the, the park police, permitted, and obviously that didn't happen. So he found himself there without the very thing that he was called upon to um, head up the security on that stage. 
And when the, the remaining Oath Keepers that were at the Ellipse moved then to the Capitol, he joined with them. And then at that, there was a moment where they did, in fact, for just, I think, for less than 10, 14 minutes, something like that. But they were actually inside the Capitol. The only thing that Ken did wrong, technically, if he broke a law at all, it was the glorified trespassing charge. But he's charged with 11, 12 different counts, including violence, including forcing the door open, which none of the Oath Keepers did. There's no video. In fact, every bit of video that is seen uh, proves that none of them were engaged in any violence whatsoever. As a matter of fact, at one point, when the famous officer Dunn came down with his M4 automatic rifle down the steps and was con confronted by some of the more nefarious actors on that day, Ken Harrelson put his body in between this Capitol Police officer with an automatic rifle and the more nefarious uh, ne'er-do-wells and brought calm to the situation. That's what he's guilty of that day. So here, let me, I, I'm, I'm finding it, even though every day, my research and what we do here and the stories that we publish, I see all of this stuff. I talked about it ad nauseum with Congressman Mike Johnson at nine o'clock mm -hmm. this morning here on TNN Live. I'm frustrated because I'm seeing our government do stuff that the government's not supposed to do. There is not any justification whatsoever under the law, Constitution, even D.C. law, that justifies putting somebody in the gulag, as you call that D.C. jail, for a year and a half awaiting trial. And what he is charged with um, for pretty much 90% plus of the people that have either pled to or been tried, it's, it's dropped in seriousness down to misdemeanor charges. It's like yes. the government is weaponized itself against its people. And this Oath Keeper trial that is about to go on, it's representative of that. What is the what is the feeding thing that is causing this to happen that you've been able to nail down for yourself? Well, if we're talking about what, what's feeding the government, is they need the ultimate patsy to take the fall for this. And it, and it is also a misdirection from their own involvement that day. And you and I could wax on that for forever. Yeah. A full show. Yeah. yeah. Because, because the government's involvement that day is, um, it's not just apparent to those of us who are looking, it's being head hidden by those purposefully by those who don't want us to look any further. That's why we have so many, I think we're up to somewhere in the 140 or 160, uh, range of individuals who we picked out of videos doing bad things, who we have clear, high definition, facial recognition of who they were or are, and yet for some reason those people are not on the FBI's most wanted list. They don't fit, so the, can, pro we, they don't fit the profile that the FBI, if they're going to tag this on somebody and make somebody, as you said, be the right. patsy, it's got to be right. one of those evil, evil conservatives, MAGA people. Yeah. And, and, and this is, this is 
taking this another step further, in the case of Ken Harrelson himself, he is a completely apolitical guy, has never voted in a presidential election in his lifetime. Wow. He's neither neither a Trump supporter or, or you know, he just he's just not that guy. He's an American. <laughs> he he no, they took, he was he was after uh, becoming a disabled veteran. He went to work as a welder for SpaceX down there in you know uh, in Florida, and then he would be the guy. So there's a hurricane coming to Florida right now. So yeah. this is this is what this guy was known to do. This is the guy that when a hurricane was tracking in their direction, he, and everybody was ordered to evacuate, he would go to all of his neighbors, and he says, "You get your family out of here." I'm staying. I'll watch your house. No looters will will bother your stuff. And he would stay during the hurricane so everybody else could leave with the security of knowing that their properties would be safe while they were gone. So is his trial about to start? Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, jury selection begins today for his, Stuart Rhodes, and three of the other Oath Keepers. Are so you? Five, uh, I, was gonna, I was just going to ask you, are you involved in the trial? Yes, I, w- I will be there uh, by Saturday. I've got, as I said, I just got back from two and a half weeks in Houston on my last road trip, rather. And I will be taking care of, you know, a few days of personal issues. I've actually got a show on Friday with my band. And then Saturday, I'm heading up to D.C. And I will be there for between six and eight weeks until this trial is over. So next Tuesday, when you come back, you may have at least the beginning and you know, when they start jury selection, sometimes it takes a while. I got a feeling in this yeah. one, it's not going to take that long. Uh, and yeah, I the also jury selection process is, is not going to be difficult because they're not going to find enough people to eliminate anyway. You can't because it's the, the, the DC jury pool is so poisoned and tainted. Yeah. Um, that 90 polling shows that 95.5% of the DC voter base already has a negative predisposition towards the Oath Keeper's guilt. Wow. Yeah. So this guy, based upon uh, initially what probably will happen, he's he, he may be looking at some hard time and some big money. I can tell you that the entire legal team for all five of these, uh, this first round of Oath Keeper trials, there's just, there's another trial beginning in late November of the next batch of Oath Keepers. They couldn't do they couldn't do them all at one time because of the space requirements needed inside the actual courtroom itself. But as a result of what this particular judge has done to these attorneys and to their presentations, their submissions, their filings, their uh, requests for discovery, all of their motions their defense witness list submissions, all of these things, as well as their expert witness list. And this judge keeps shooting them all down that it's left this entire group of lawyers literally demoralized. They are going into this with the expectation that this is a fait accompli of guilt for all five defendants. And they're just going to have to come back in the appeal process. That is such a discouraging thing for any American to face because I thought we were innocent unless and until proven guilty in a trial and a jury of our peers. That doesn't seem to be the case in everything dealing 
with the outcome after the January 6th incidents that happened that day. That's scary. And Dan, to just throw gasoline on this fire, the House January 6th Select Committee is firing up again with their nationally televised dog and pony show again tomorrow on the week of jury selection. Well, they've got to get as much dirt out in the marketplace of ideas before November the 8th, the midterm elections. That's the only hope they have. Yeah, I, I just can't believe that there's not some federal judge somewhere who will not step in and say, stop this. Because yeah. all of the, the attorneys have, have petitioned for a, you know, a six, uh, at least a six month, uh, what do you call it? A continuance on yeah. this. Yeah. They, they've all petitioned for change of venue and all of that continues to get shot down. It's just a, it's literally, and if you're a Star Trek nerd, it's a Kobayashi Maru scenario. It's a no win scenario. It's, it's really saddening to even have this conversation and know what you're about to go into, but Look, do this, um, get as much as you can updated information. And I know you will because you're, yeah. you're in the middle of it and that's what you do. So next Tuesday, when you come back, you'll be able to give us maybe a, a kind of a forecast of projected stuff yeah. because there are a lot of people that are really concerned about this whole mess. And, uh, you know, they, they expect to have the jury selected this week and that's really fast for a trial of this magnitude, yeah, but that's yeah. because of the limited choices in DC. It's yeah. just going to go fast. Wow. And as a result of that, we will probably be in the courtroom Monday and I'll definitely have a, a, a good preliminary uh, forecast for you. All right, buddy. We'll be safe and uh, keep us posted and looking in your rearview mirror, the outcomes when they start to come back in from Houston. Make sure you update us on that stuff there. I will do that. Steve Baker, our friend, our partner on Tuesday. Thank you so much, buddy. We'll see you next Thank Tuesday. You, Dan. you found the light. You found TNN. The Truth News Network.